Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Damien, and it's uh, my absolute pleasure to uh, bring you the final week of our um, series in Exodus. We've been looking at uh, the people that God uses and the way that God uses imperfect people to bring about His His wonderful plans. We've um, yeah, gone, gone week through week through the Exodus story and we've, we've had various lessons along the way of how God likes to use His people. Um, starting, starting out, we, we learned how God uses those who have a healthy fear of Him, who fear the Lord, that God uses our past experiences, even our past failures. God uses those who are willing to be sent by Him. God uses those who lay down what is in their hands before the Lord, ready to be um, used by Him. God uses us in our disappointments, even when we're wrestling with, with our brokenness, with the brokenness of others. And last week, Pastor Graham brought us a message um, about how God loves to use those who soften their hearts, who have soft, humble hearts before Him. But that even, even though He loves to use that, He will also use those who harden their hearts um, again, uh, towards Him, as, as Pharaoh did. And, and so today we have the climax of this story, and we have the climax of our series, our last, our last week in Exodus. So it's, it's all been leading up to this point. Obviously, the, the story continues after this, but this is one of the biggest events in God's story and God's um, great plan for salvation. And today's lesson is different. Today is less about how God used Moses or used the Israelites or used Aaron or, or used Pharaoh against his will, but this is about God taking center stage, God's big moment. This is a sit back and watch moment where we get to sit back and watch uh, what, what God is doing for His people, what His plans are for the world. And I'm going to be completely honest to start off with, this story makes me uncomfortable. Okay? It does. This story makes me uncomfortable. There are stories, there are things in God's Word that make me a little bit edgy because this is a story where some pretty horrible things happen. And it can be actually quite hard to reconcile with that, with this idea that God is love. So I want to be very honest about that from the start. Um, you know, if someone asks you to um, tell them what God is like and to give them stories to, to show what God is like, this might not be your go-to, okay? It's a tricky story. It's probably not our go-to when we want to talk about what God is like. Um, you know, I, I thought Graham did a, a really good job this morning um, presenting the, the kids' talk. I want to applaud him for that because it's not, a, not an easy topic to give a kids' talk on, right? When you've got little baby lambs dying and things like that. So I take my hat off to you. That was, you did that really well. And, and I, I relate to that because I'm a, I'm a primary school teacher. I teach grade two um, at, a, at a Christian school. And I love, I love um, t telling my kids the, the stories about God and how he journeys with his people. And it's, there's so much rich, richness in there. Stories like this are a bit tricky, Right? And I, I, I do actually, I'll admit, I get a little bit bothered sometimes when we um, potentially take stories like, you know, Noah's Ark and Battle of Jericho and things like that, and we turn them into these, you know, cute, fun kids' stories. We kind of gloss over the fact that a whole lot of people get killed and that God is the one orchestrating that. We can kind of gloss over that a little bit. And, and, and I just want to be upfront and tell you that this story bothers me a bit. And I think it's actually, it's, it's okay to do that. I'll go a step further. It's not just okay, it's actually really healthy. To be honest before God and honest with each other and honest with yourself and say, you know what, the way I see things, this troubles me. Now I've got a quote for you from a, a person much smarter than I am called Tim Keller. Um, and he, he speaks into this. He says, sorry, it's a bit small up there, but I'll read it for you anyway. Um, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? 
If you pick and choose what you want to believe and you reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or marriage will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So wrestling with this stuff is not just okay, it's really healthy. In fact, from that, and, and I would agree that it's actually more of a concern if nothing in the Word of God ever bothers you. If nothing makes you uncomfortable, if nothing challenges you, that's more of a concern. So I want to start out by acknowledging that it's actually okay to say, look, this story bothers me. In our, the reality is in our, in, our, in our fallen state, we don't understand things and comprehend things the way that we should. We'll talk about this a little bit more a bit later, that often we kind of fall into this subconscious trap of saying, actually, God, I think I know a little bit more than, a little bit better than you do. And so if you're here today and you're new to the church thing, or you, you don't consider yourself a Christian, or you've never heard this story before, you are so incredibly welcome here. Even if you're reading this story and feeling a little bit disgusted and appalled at what you've read, and maybe a little bit disgusted and appalled that this guy might be trying to explain that stuff away, but I just want to encourage you to hang in there, hang in there and, 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 and be, be prepared to acknowledge that sometimes we can't fully comprehend what's going, the, what's going on under, under the surface and there's more going on in the story than what we might first realise. So I'm going to pray for us um, and then we're going to launch into this story, starting with all the things that are hard about it and that are really, really challenging. So I'm going to pray for us. Lord God, it is tough to read stories like this. And we know that you are loving and that you are good. And it can be tempting when we, when we face things that make us uncomfortable just to sort of brush them aside and, and pretend all is well. But Lord, you, can, you, you, you love to, to challenge your people. You challenged Moses. It wasn't smooth sailing for him. There was times that he didn't know what was going on and what you were doing and why you were doing it. So we come before you knowing that you love us, or maybe we're not sure that you love us, but thank you that you can meet us in both of those places. And I pray that in this, in this story today that, that, that um, speaks so powerfully into your heart for humanity and your, your big rescue plan through Jesus, that you will open our eyes, soften our hearts, that we might learn more about you this morning. Amen. All right, so let's launch into it. On the screen, I'm going to have um, the three main challenges, or the way I see it, the three main challenges with this story. The first two are really obvious. The third one, you've got to dig a little bit deeper, but it's a really important one as well. Um, the first one is God kills a lot of people, okay? Let's call it for what it is. God kills a lot of people. A lot of them are kids, all right? It's hard. This is, this is a, a pretty brutal story. You might think to yourself, and I certainly think this, okay, well, maybe Pharaoh deserved that. There's definitely an argument for that. What about all the others? Challenge number two. God orders the Israelites to slaughter a whole lot of innocent, fluffy little animals just to protect themselves from God. Right? What's with that? That's bizarre, isn't it? Poor little, cute, fluffy animals. I mean, they're delicious, but I still feel sorry for them, right? And the, the third point is, is again, a bit more, bit, more, um, bit more nuanced to it. You've got to dig a little deeper, but it is just as confronting when you think about it, and that is that this story shows us the standing of humanity before God, and it is not good. It is not good. It is dire. In other words, sin, really, really, really bad, and we are completely helpless to address that problem. That's what this story lays bare. So I know it's, I know it's uh, heavy stuff so far, real cheerful for your Sunday morning, but 
the news does get a lot better. Um, let, let's start with the third challenge that I've listed up there, because that kind of informs the way we look at the first two. So this, this very Christian-y word, right, of sin, that even if, you're, even if you, it's your first time in church today, you've probably heard of Christians talk about this word sin. It's not a, not a word that gets a great rap, understandably so. Um, but to have, to have the right lenses to understand uh, to see this story and understand this story in light of the character of God, we, we, the, the story of the Passover, we really need to understand the nature of sin and just how awful it is. So the, the first thing we need to understand is that sin is far more pervasive than we realise. It is far more widespread in us and it's far more of a problem than we realise. You know, we often think of sin kind of almost superficially, like it's the bad stuff we do, like I did this and I shouldn't have done that, or maybe I should have done this good thing but I didn't do that. And it, it, the, the problem is that sin is far more, um, it, it goes far deeper than just the things we do. It even goes far deeper than the things we think or the feelings we have, alright? It goes far deeper to the core of who we are. Um, perhaps a better word, and you might have used the, heard the word brokenness being used for sin. And I think that's actually a, a very helpful word. You know, if something's broken, it's not functioning the way it was designed to. There's some flaw, there's something going wrong. If we, if we think of sin like just like dirt on our body, then what do we do? We just try and keep ourselves clean, don't we? We try and scrub the dirt off. We try and prove we're cleaner than those people over there. But that's, a, that's a, a, a sort of a disgusting religious moralism kind of view that, that, no, one, that no one enjoys. Sin is, is far more pervasive than just dirt on our skin that we try and scrub off. It's more like a sickness. It's more like a sickness that's all through us. All right? it's, it's sort of woven into our, our nature as human beings. It's, it's kind of inherent to who we are. And, and Gra- Graham made this, Pastor Graham made this point uh, last week that our hearts are sick. He pointed out that with, with young children, he used the example of his own children, you don't need to teach them to lie or to rebel or to, to, um, to disobey, do you? It's just kind of inherent, they just, they just know how to do it. Now you might be thinking, hang on, this, this, like, surely we can't be this bad, right? Like, aren't we made in the image of God? Isn't there some goodness there? And yes, absolutely, we are made in the image of God. We were made to reflect His likeness and in part, we still do that. In part, we still do that. But think of like a damaged portrait, a portrait that's meant to show the likeness of someone that's been damaged, or a reflection of a person in a pond, but someone's just thrown a stone in it's disturbed that reflection. Okay, that our ability to reflect who God is has been corrupted, it's been damaged. And again, using, using children as an example, and as a, as a teacher, I really relate to this, in, in children, you see the most beautiful, beautiful reflections of the image of God. You see these little flashes of, of God's character in just their, their purity, their innocence, in their joy, in the way they, they treat each other sometimes. It's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful reflection of who God is. You also see our fallen nature in children, right? It, it, those of you who are parents or teachers really, really get that. You definitely see flashes of the image of God, but also very clear insight into our fallen nature. And that this, this fallen nature, this, this like corruption that infects all of humanity, we can trace that all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. See, when Adam and Eve, um, you know, picked the, picked the fruit, the famous story, and they ate the fruit, the, the, the problem there was far more than breaking a rule. Okay? Breaking a rule was the least of their worries because at the heart of what Adam and Eve did when, when the, the enemy Satan got in their ear and, and, and um, tricked them and, and made them 
um, think that they knew better than God. At the heart of that, 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 that uh, taking the fruit was actually rebellion against God. It was their way of saying, actually God, you created all of this, you created us, but I don't think that your plan for how this tree should work, I don't, th- I don't think your, um, your, your plan for us is, is quite adequate, I, th- I, think I, I think we know better. So in doing so, this perfect created order that God had created, this, this relationship that mankind had with God, they were, they were shattered. God's relationship with humanity was shattered. Humanity no longer showed off God's image the way they were designed to, the way we were designed to. And, and this desire, that Adam and Eve's desire to do things their own way, that's now built into who we are, in our fallen DNA, essentially. It's, it's part of who we are. We just, we can't help thinking that we know best. Great example of that is a, a little girl I have in my class this year. Yeah, I teach grade two, so little seven and eight-year-olds. And a little girl, we'll call her, call her Julie, and she's, she's adorable, she's like, she's really funny, she's got a great sense of humor, she's a really sweet kid, makes me laugh, but she is so strong-willed, right? She is, she is so strong-willed. I, I, I joked with her mum, and her mum agreed, like at the parent-teacher interview, that if, if you tell Julie that the grass is green, if she's convinced it's blue, it's blue, right? She'll tell you that the grass is blue. Because in her mind, if, she convi- if she's convinced the grass is blue, then it's blue and she's going to tell you about it. She is really strong-willed. And then one time a few weeks ago, we were doing maths and um, I was sort of we're doing adding into tens and ones, not that you care about that. But uh, yeah, we're do- doing maths anyway. And, uh, and, and I was sort of floating around the room helping them one-on-one as they were doing some practice with this. And um, Julie had this question of 26 plus 13. I'll help you out, the answer's 39, so you don't have to hurt yourself, but, um, so 26 plus 13, but she'd got a little bit mixed up, and she'd got the wrong answer, and so I, I sat with her, and I sort of showed where she'd gone wrong, and I showed her, look, you know, the answer's actually 39, and when I told her what the answer was, and showed her where she'd gone, gone wrong, she looked at me, just stared at me, like, piercing stare, she goes, no, it's not, and I just, like, recalled, like, she'd slap me, like, I was like, what's going on here? I, 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 I'm not used to getting this from junior primary kids, they're usually in awe of me, right? I'm the, I'm the male teacher, my word is law, you do what I say, kind of thing. But no, she's like, nope, you're wrong. And once I recovered from my shock and explained to her, kept my cool, got the heart rate down and, and uh, pretended I had it all together again and explained her where she was wrong and she was a bit embarrassed and realised that she was wrong. But we, we all have that woven into us, don't we? We all have that woven into who we are that actually, yeah, God, I know that you created the world and I know you created galaxies and stuff like that. And I know you actually created me and you know how I'm designed to work, but I think I know better. I think I know better. And so sin, sin at its heart is not just rule-breaking. It's actually rebellion against the king of the universe. It's rebellion against our creator. It's building our own little throne for ourselves to sit on because deep down subconsciously, we think that we know better. So we have no possible way to understand just how serious this is. We can't comprehend how serious that is. If, if God truly revealed to us just how serious that was, it would crush us, it would break us. Now you might have noticed that in, in all this, I haven't actually mentioned the Israelites or the Egyptians at all. And that's intentional. Because I, I'm not just talking about the Egyptians. I'm not just talking about, you know, those sinful non-believers out there. Egyptians, Israelites, believers, non-believers. This is, for all of us, this is the problem that we're faced with. All of us have this brokenness. All of us have this need to be saved. The Israelites, they weren't, they weren't the people of God because they were like extra special, extra righteous. 
They, within a few weeks, they, they were complaining that they wanted to be back in Egypt and they were worshipping a golden calf. Like, they, they didn't exactly cover themselves in glory. They're only the people of God because God, in His mercy, said to them, I'm going to make you my chosen special people so that I can reveal my mercy to the whole world. And this is where the lambs come in. This is where the lambs come in because one of the main stories we take from the story of Passover is that the, the Israelites were in need of God's um, mercy just as much as the Egyptians were. So the lambs. Now, the, the other main thing we need to understand about sin is that it is directly and in, intrinsically um, linked to death. Okay? It, it's, it is um, inextricably linked to death. Sin and death go hand in hand. Again, running, running back to, to Genesis with the Garden of Eden. Before Adam and Eve... Um, had even thought about disobeying God, God warned them. He said, don't eat from the fruit of this tree because if you eat it, you will surely die. Up until that point, death wasn't a thing. It wasn't. Like, getting old and having your body, you know, eventually dying, not a thing. But God warned them, "If if if you disobey me, you will surely die. And so now... Because of the corruption that's affected all of, uh, all of creation, all of humanity, as a result of that one act of rebellion, death is now a reality for all of us. Regardless of how much we might try to shield ourselves from it, it's a reality. It's a natural outcome. Right? Sin, made, sin made death an inevitability. Rebellion against God leads to separation from God. It's as, it's as direct as walking out into the rain will make you wet. Not drinking water for three days will make you thirsty. Sin leads to death. They are directly linked. Paul actually expresses it remarkably well in, in Romans 6. He says, the wages of sin is death. Now, as I was reflecting on that during the week, this idea of, of wages, I remember when I was, um, uh, my first ever paid job was stacking fruit and veg shelves at, Wool, at my local Woolworths when I was 14 years and nine months old. I was so small, I was one of the smallest kids in my entire high school, found out later on that I actually, while I was working, uh, there was actually some shoppers that complained to other staff members that they were employing underage staff because I was so small, all right, it actually concerned them, I was a little bit embarrassed when I found out that later on, but I do remember the first time I got a payslip and I was so excited, I wanted to to open up, see how much I'd earned from my $7.70 an hour, it was great stuff. I uh, wasn't, I didn't cover myself in glory and didn't, I wasn't a great testament to the company. Me and my mate Alex used to, uh, when there was no supervisors around, used to take turns to hide in the big walk-in fridge, turn the lights off, we'd go in and throw oranges at each other in the dark, all right? So we weren't, we weren't the best workers, but I can remember, I can remember that feeling of like, yeah, I'm getting paid, this is awesome. Now, fast forward a few years, um, I'm now a teacher getting paid a whole lot more, and when I get my fortnightly email with my payslip, I don't think anything of it. It's like, oh yeah. Got paid. If I didn't get that, I'd be kicking up a fuss, but it's there, so I'm happy, all good. I don't react like this. I don't react like, in shock, like, wow. You mean, I I worked for two weeks and now you're paying me? That's really cool, that's totally unexpected. I didn't expect that. No, of course I don't react that way. It's it's, it's expected, it's it's fair, It's, it's the natural outcome of doing my work, is I get paid. Now, Paul's point is the same about sin. Paul doesn't say the, uh, the, 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 the random punishment, the random excessive punishment for sin is death. No, he says the wages of sin is death. He says this is the natural, the natural conclusion that sin reaches. It is the natural, expected and fair 
outcome of sin is death. And this truth is the same for all of humanity, like I said before. Egyptian, Israelite, Australian, male, female, young, old. It's the same for all of us. The situation for the Israelites was hopeless. Their their, their captivity to sin was represented in their captivity to Pharaoh in Egypt. It was hopeless and on, on, on every level. And then God, in His mercy, steps in. He steps in. He says to the people, if you sacrifice the lamb, it will die in your place. It will suffer the fate that your sin leads to. Because sin is inevitably, it is inextricably linked to death. Blood had to be involved. As icky as that is, blood had to be involved. And God in His mercy said, even though death is what you ultimately deserve, the lamb can die in your place. It was meant to be disturbing. You know, as Christians, we get desensitized to this kind of thing, right? Because we, we don't, unless you, unless you work in an abattoir or something, or you're a farmer, you don't have to deal with this kind of thing. It's like, oh yeah, they sacrificed a lamb, whatever. But... I'm not going to get graphic with the kids in here, but like if I was to demonstrate this to you, right, you'd, you'd get a really renewed sense of how costly the sacrifice was on every level. It was meant to be disturbing. It was meant to show them the cost and the price of their sin. God couldn't just ignore their sin because you know what? Ignoring evil is evil. God couldn't just sweep, the, sweep all our wrongdoings under the carpet. That's not fair. That's not righteous. That's awful. God is a righteous judge. Love hates wrongdoing. God is love. He hates sin. The sacrifice of the lambs was a reminder of that. It was a reminder that sin leads to death. But it was also a reminder of God's mercy. So if we come back to the first challenge I listed um, this morning, of the, all the firstborns dying, which is really hard to stomach, But we've seen that sin is far more serious than we ever could imagine. It's far more serious than our minds can understand. It's rebellion against the king of the universe. And the wages, the direct result, the natural outcome, the wages of sin is death. And so what happens to the Egyptian firstborns is awful and disturbing and gut-wrenching and horrible and tragic and just. It is the result of sin because the wages of sin is death. And in fact, when you, when, you, when you start with that and you look at the rest of it, the part of the story that's less fair is that the Israelites didn't get what they deserved. That it was the lambs that were killed in their place. That part is actually less fair. It's like, well, hang on, God. If, if sin is so bad, why do you just let the Israelites go? If sin is so bad, why don't they get what they deserve? How is that fair? This leads us to the final lesson of a Passover story, and that is something that is something greater was still needed. As we, as we read on in the Bible, we see that God actually established this whole sacrificial system as a way for His people to come back into relationship with Him and have, have their sins um, passed over. And we also learn that it was never meant to be a permanent fix. The lambs, the sacrifices, they were all temporary. They never actually permanently fixed anything. They were only a temporary fix and much more was needed. Sin was still a reality. Even when they left Egypt and left captivity, they were still captives to sin. Things, things went pretty bad after that. Because the problem with the Israelites was the Israelites. They were the problem. Sin was the problem. And so they needed something greater. And then two, almost 2,000 years later, After centuries and centuries of God 
journeying with his people and his people stuffing things up and the, the sacrificial system playing a part in, in, in God's story but not being enough and they're in this constant cycle of failure and then almost 2,000 years later, a man named John points to another man walking past and calls out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. He was pointing to Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So it's, it's easy for us to um, sort of dismiss the Passover as this, this archaic Jewish tradition that we don't celebrate anymore. But it is one of the clearest, clearest pictures of the Gospel, of the good news that we find in the Old Testament. Because in this story, in the story of the Passover, we have this terrible, terrible, terrible cost that is paid in order to free God's people from enslavement to evil. And then one day later, not one day later, one day, later on, one day, an even more terrible cost would be paid to free God's people from enslavement to evil forever. Jesus Christ is described as our spotless Passover lamb who gave himself willingly. He willingly gave us, gave himself. He was the innocent spotless lamb who gave his own life freely. He gave his life freely so that the inevitable punishment for sin would be taken on himself. God's righteous wrath was directed on him and not on us. So that we will be free of the curse of sin. So that death would lose its sting and that we would one day have eternal life with him. Now, the, the next bit of great news is that I only read part of Paul's quote before about wages of sin being death. I'm going to read the rest of that sentence. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, I love the comparison that he makes between wages and gift. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus took our sin, he conquered death by rising from the dead. And so the great news is that we don't get our wages, right? We don't get what is, is, is naturally coming to us because of our rebellion, because of our sin. We don't get what we deserve because Jesus willingly took that for us. And so the events of the, of the Passover are a, a devastating, troubling, disturbing reminder of the cost of sin, of just how bad sin is. We're, we're right to be troubled by that. All right? Just because I've talked about it this morning doesn't mean I'm not troubled by it. It's disturbing. It's a disturbing story. But that, that, that event points forward with this great clarity towards an event thousands of years or hundreds of years later where an even greater injustice would be done, the greatest injustice and crime that the world has ever seen. When Jesus died for us, and that is how God saved his people. That's how God saved us. And when we see that cost, just like the Israelites reminded themselves every year, the Jewish people continue to remind themselves every year of the cost that was paid when, when God led them out of Egypt. Just like they do that, let us reflect on what Jesus has done and praise him. Give him the praise he deserves for what he has done. If this is the, the, the first time that you've heard the story of the Passover or, or the first time that you've heard sin talked about this much. I want to I finish by sharing a, another little quote by, by Tim Keller. It's one of my favourites, which kind of sums up what I'm talking about today. He says, The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believed. Yet at the same time, 
We are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That is the message of the Passover and it's the message of the Gospel. So as Christians, as God's family, we, we, don't, we don't shy away from this issue of sin. It's, it's, it's hard to talk about and some of these stories are hard to face, but we don't ignore that because it's reality. It's the reality of, of who we are and the problem that, we, that, that sin presents, and the, the estrangement that we have from God. We don't shy away from that. It's rebellion against our Creator. But where sin abounds, God's mercy and grace and love abounds all the more doesn't matter how great your sin is, doesn't matter how great your sin will be in the years to come, nothing you have done or I have done or we have done is more powerful than what Jesus did on the cross. I'm going to call the band up. Um, In a moment we're going to sing in in response and praise to God. I'm just going to finish by reading um, a passage from Isaiah 53. This was a a prophecy that was made about Jesus before Jesus actually came and you'll, you'll, um, there's this imagery of, of lambs and sacrifice here. This is about Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Where sin abounds, God's grace always abounds more. And that is available to every single person in this room. Let's, let's stand, let's sing in response to Jesus because he is worthy for what he has done.